which is in our Pew Bible, page 18, 1,853. This uh, letter that St. Paul wrote is the last one just prior to his martyrdom during the reign of Nero, the mad emperor who <coughs> initiated one of the worst persecutions of the early church. And tradition tells us that not only Paul, but also Peter was martyred at the same time. So, 2 Timothy 2 may be regarded as the will and testament of the Apostle Paul addressed to his spiritual son, Timothy. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses in trust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. Endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer. Similarly, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not receive the victor's crown unless he competes according to the rules. The hard-working farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Reflect on what I am saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all this. Remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel for which I'm suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Here is a trustworthy saying. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If we are faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot disown himself. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. The text for my message is, Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. That is my gospel for which I'm suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. My message today deals primarily with two points the message and the method. 
but I need to give a little bit of introduction to Timothy. It's a very interesting story that we can gather from both the book of Acts and from the first and second epistles that were sent by Paul to this young man, Timothy. In the 13th chapter of the book of Acts, the Antiochian church, which was the first really Gentile church, ordained Paul and Barnabas to be foreign missionaries. Prior to that, the Christian church was spreading unofficially or spontaneously thanks to those who were in Jerusalem on Pentecost Sunday. There were thousands of them that had come from all over the Roman Empire in order to celebrate Pentecost, and it happened that the Holy Spirit came upon the church in a mighty way, and Peter preached a sermon, and many of those who were there were struck to their hearts and asked what should we do now? And they were told to repent and be baptized and will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So the church was born, and many of these people went back. They couldn't keep silent about it. So they shared the faith in Damascus, in Rome, in Corinth, in Ephesus, wherever. However, the church in Antioch was guided by the Holy Spirit to have official mission work because the official missionary, Paul and Barnabas, were going to organize the church, ordain elders and deacons because God loves order. That's how he created the world, in order. So, when Paul and Barnabas went and preached in chapters related for that in 13 and 14, they organized several churches and came back to give a report to the mother church, as many missionaries, when they are on furlough, go around our churches and give a report what the Lord has accomplished through their ministry. And then a problem arose in the early church there were some uh, of Jewish background who were converted, but they haven't fully understood the meaning of the gospel that a convert doesn't have to be a, become a Jew in order to be a Christian. I mean, they don't have to, obtain, to observe the ceremonial laws, which were no longer in effect in the New Testament age. So there was a uh, presbytery or classes or you may call it the Synod of Jerusalem and officially Paul and Barnabas who were delegates that went from Antioch all the way to Jerusalem and met with the elders of the church and the other apostles and they reached the conclusion that Gentiles don't have to become Jewish in order to be true Christians. But they said don't forget uh, the poor, in other words, the ministry of mercy, which the church hadn't forgotten, really. In fact, they had already ordained seven deacons before that. But the point is that now, after all that done, Paul said to 
his friend Barnabas, let's go back and see how the churches are faring. I mean, the churches that were organized and that were mentioned in chapter 13 and 14. So in chapter 16, as this offer was made, unfortunately, there was a first division. I mean, not in the church, but among the missionaries. Why? Because on their first missionary journey, a young man called Mark, or John Mark as he was known, very young man, was their assistant, but he couldn't stand the strains of mission work. In those days, you walked as a missionary, unless you had to cross the sea. They went from Antioch to Seleucia, which happens to be my birthplace. I shock people when I tell them I was born in Acts 13, verse 4. I'm referring to the city, <laughs> not that I'm that ancient. But they went to Cyprus, but from Cyprus to Asia Minor, they sailed again. But from then on, they walked on the Roman roads, which were like the interstate highway system now, except that they were meant for walking. So Mark went back to Jerusalem. He was a young man, and Paul said, I don't want him to accompany us on our second missionary journey. Barnabas said, I do. He's growing up. So they separated. In love, I trust. Well, the point is, Paul needed a helper. He had a helper called Silas. Great, but Paul arrived at a city called Lystra, and there he discovered a very interesting young man. His grandma, Lois, had been a convert for a long time. His mother, Eunice, were converts, but his father was a Greek, and we may presume he was a gentle Greek, a wonderful Gentile, but he wasn't a believer. But that family must have been well-to-do, they had a copy of the Scriptures. Remember, in those days when we say the Scripture, we mean the Old Testament. There was no New Testament yet. But he had been taught the Scripture from a young man, and he looked very bright, and so Paul must have given him the invitation, and he joined the group. And Timothy wasn't really an ordinary young man. He just caught up so much. After a while, when there were problems in the church, when Paul couldn't attend to them, he would send Timothy as his ambassador, like the way our president sometimes sends special ambassador to reconcile Palestinians with Israelis or some special problems. In the past, it used to be Henry Kissinger. I don't know who it is in the new administration. I haven't been contacted yet to help the Israeli-Palestinian problem. But anyhow, seriously now, eventually, would you believe it, Paul appoints Timothy as a pastor of the church in Ephesus. Wow! Ephesus was the largest city in Asia Minor. Asia Minor today is Turkey. I happened to have visited Ephesus in 1992 with a tour group doing the second and 
first missionary journeys of Paul, and even now Ephesus, the ruins of Ephesus are very impressive. Well, anyhow, being in Ephesus was quite a terrific job, and he needed counseling. And besides that, the church in Ephesus was so important that Paul also wrote a letter to them, the letter to the Ephesians. Now, this is the second letter to Timothy. And now, Paul knew he wasn't going to be acquitted as he was at the imprisonment mentioned in Acts 28. You know, in the book of Acts, Dr. Luke ends by telling us Paul was in Rome under house arrest. That wasn't too bad. People could visit him, and he could write letters. He did from Rome. And tradition tells us that his accusers didn't come from Jerusalem to say that he had actually uh, done something very bad by bringing Gentiles into the temple. That was the accusation in uh, years before. So the case was dismissed and he did lots of traveling. He may have gone to, to Spain. We don't know. But this is the last imprisonment. He was going to be martyred. And the crazy, mad emperor was in Rome, Nero. We hear about, we've heard a good deal, I'm sure, in the past about Nero, the one who murdered so many Christians. What is he going to tell him? Well, he's going to remind him. He is going to remind him of his responsibility. So he says to him, you know, remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel. This is our message 2,000 years later. What I'm emphasizing here is that Timothy had to remember, even though he has been with Paul for many years, he grew up in a home that he was taught the scripture as a young man. He knew many passages of the Old Testament by heart, just like Peter, for example, on the day of Pentecost, he didn't have a Bible in his hand. He had Psalm 16 memorized, Psalm 110, which testified to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I mean, there were many parts of the messianic parts of the Bible that people memorized, like Isaiah 53, the sufferings of the Lord. So Timothy had to be reminded of the essence of the gospel. Now, I have jotted down quite a few of these summaries of the gospel that I would like to remind you of that were mentioned in the Bible. For example, in the book of Romans, Paul begins by saying that this is an, I am the apostles entrusted by God to preach the gospel. He called the gospel the gospel of God concerning his son Jesus Christ. So the emphasis is on the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. You and I are more, in a sense, 
given gifts than what even Timothy. Well, you say, no, Timothy was more gifted than we are. He saw Paul himself. Yes, he did. But he didn't have the New Testament. The New Testament books were being gathered slowly, gradually, and the list was completed and put together by the middle of the second century. That's what we call in history the canon of the New Testament, 27 books. Now, the Old Testament was available to Timothy, thankfully, 200 years before Christ, since the majority of the Jews didn't go back to the Holy Land, didn't know Hebrew, the translation was made in Alexandria into Greek. So that was available. But they didn't have the New Testament. So that the part that we call now the New Testament, most of it was memorized. And eventually they were all written. Matthew wrote the gospel according to his name and Mark, this young man that was a quitter, you know, and that Paul and Barnabas quarreled about, he wrote the second gospel, what we call. And Dr. Luke, the companion of Paul, he wrote both Luke and the Acts of the Apostles. And John, in his old age, wrote John, three epistles, and, and he wrote the revelation of John that the Lord gave him. In other words... Most of what we have in the New Testament, the heart of it was considered that which thou hast listened and you received among many witnesses, commit thou to faithful men who shall be faithful to teach others also. In Paul's days, there were no seminaries, so you interned with an apostle and you became a minister. Now we have it more orderly. You have to go to college. You have to learn Greek before they'll admit you at Mid-America or at Calvin or at any theological seminary. It wasn't so like that. You interned with Paul or with Peter, etc. But the point is that Paul was emphasizing the message and there is no other message than as he explained it to the Corinthians, Paul, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He didn't mean that the rest about our Lord wasn't important, but the heart of the gospel is the cross of Christ, the person of Christ and his work on the cross of Calvary. Now, this is what Paul meant. The word of God cannot be chained. It cannot be fettered. In the King James it says, the word of God cannot be bound. By the way, this was my motto during my 36 years of ministry on the Back to God Hour because you couldn't do mission work among the 20 Arab countries after 1946 when they got their independence their Muslim ruler said, no more missions. But the Lord opened the way of radio. And the Lord also guided the inventors, the engineers, first here in Chicago at Zenith, 
Corporation to invent the transistor, which didn't require much electricity. The Japanese got it from us. They were, I guess, a bit smarter. I don't know. We had vanquished them, but commercially, they almost vanquished us. Everything is to be made in Japan. Later on, Korea and now China. But my point is made cheap radios run on batteries so that when I preached, even the people in the villages of Egypt or of Iraq could listen to me. So the word of God, in a sense, was not bound. And now it is even much better. Last July, I met at Bethel Christian Reformed Church in Lansing, a convert from Islam known as Brother Rashid. And he is every Thursday evening on a television, satellite television station and reaching the whole Arab world on televised TV. And then he archives it on YouTube. And two hours, three hours later, I can watch what he said. Like last Thursday, I couldn't do it. I did it th Friday morning. I saw his message on Thursday night. So this is a wonderful thing. The word of God may not be bound. But listen to what the apostle also said. Therefore, because no one can bind, fetter the word of God. He wasn't meaning chaining this physical Bible here. He means nobody can stop the spread of the word of God, which is the means of grace for salvation. It pleased God through the foolishness of the preaching to save them that believe, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So Paul said, because of that, I am going to be fettered, I am fettered, I am about to be martyred, but the word of God is not chained. But he didn't stop there. You see, in the scripture, you have to find what follows the word, therefore. Before, therefore, the scripture gives us a principle, a rule. After the therefore, the application. In the book of Hebrews, because it's written in a legal language, there are 13 therefores. That means there are at least 13 points to apply. But this is not a theological seminary. I'm talking to a congregation. So I better stick to one point. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. Now, I don't have to convince you about the doctrine of election. You are members of a Reformed church. Our standards are the three forms of unity, the Belgic Confession, even the Heidelberg Catechism prepared for children talk implies that there is election. Election is very important for the preacher, you know. It means that he is not going to have his ministry go in vain. Paul was going to be martyred, but the word of God will keep going on, still marching on. So that gives hope to every missionary. It gave hope to Timothy. And he needed that. You know, and I don't want to keep you here till noon. I'll never be invited again. Let me be brief now. 
Timothy was a pastor of a church in Ephesus. Go to the first three chapters of Revelation. What do you find? You find that the Lord Jesus Christ himself now sent several brief epistles to the churches of Asia. And the first one was the church in Ephesus. And all the other churches, Thyatira, Pergamum, Philadelphia, Sardis, Laodicea, I hate to say Laodicea because that was a lukewarm church, but I have to say it. I mean, it was one of those seven churches. But the point is, during the ministry of this young man, Timothy, six other churches were formed all in that vicinity. I remember when I was in 1992, visited Ephesus, our guide also showed us all the other churches. They were not that far. We had to use the bus, but in those days they walked. Nobody used the bus. So my point is that the ministry of Timothy was very important. So the work of the gospel will always succeed. I mentioned Brother Rashid in one of his programs recently. He said, thanks to the internet, to iPhone and all these things, all the walls which surrounded the Muslim world have been broken, just like that wall in Berlin came down, tumbling down one day. And East and West Germany got, Berlin and Germany all were united. So, the word of God cannot be bound. And I just wanted to see what happened after the New Testament age. And as late as 430, Ephesus was in the news as far as the Christian church was concerned. You know, our creed, the first creed, the Nicene Creed, we believe in one God, Father Almighty, that we have in the Psalter hymnal, was decided upon in 325 AD. That was the first world council or ecumenical council in Nicaea, that's in Asia Minor. But there was also a, conf a second council in Ephesus. The year was around 430. And they gave us the final version of the creed that we once in a while use on Sunday evening. But more than that, at that council of 430, they condemned a heresy called Pelagianism, which was spread by a British monk, and the summary of it is that there is no original sin. All of us are like Adam and Eve. We start with a clean slate, and then we may lead a perfect life and we wouldn't need a savior, or then if we fall, we can ask for forgiveness without the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. That was a very, very serious heresy. Later on, it still affected the church in a mild form. It's called Arminianism. And that's why we have the canons of Dort, which condemned Arminianism, which minimizes the impact of original sin. So, here is a young man who 
was a pastor of a church in Ephesus, and he became more or less instrumental in founding six other churches. Eventually, before the rise of Islam, a council was held centered at that church in Ephesus, which gave us the final version of our creed and condemned one of the earliest heresies in the church. We praise God that his word is not bound. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, the very fact that we are in this church building worshiping thee this morning is another testimony